Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the hope that we have laid up for us in heaven. We pray, Lord, that our relationship with you through faith in Christ would be ever increasing. Use our time this morning in your word to effect that in us. And we need your help to do this. And so we ask this again for your glory and our joy. Amen. <clears throat> so, do you love Jesus Christ? Truly, zealously? Is your life characterized by a Christ-like love? Does Christ's love reign in your home? <clears throat> Is there an atmosphere of Christ-like love here at Kenwood Baptist Church? I think that this is a question we should regularly be asking ourselves. Do you, do I, do we love King Jesus? Do we love him preeminently? Do we love him zealously? And we're asking ourselves this question in response to the teaching of Revelation chapter 2 that we started kind of looking at back in December and then again last week where we see this stinging rebuke that Christ gave to the church in Ephesus. Now that church was commended for its doctrine, its discernment, its durability, but they were rebuked because they had abandoned their first love. They weren't loving Jesus Christ preeminently. Their love for him had grown cold and this is a serious charge because Jesus explained that if they continued on that course, they would cease to be a church. And so this is a good question for every church, for every professing saint to regularly or even systematically ask, do you, do I, do we love King Jesus? And it might be hard for us to tell really how we're doing in this area. Sin is deceitful. It has a way of numbing the eyes of our souls. But there are a few red flags that might help us discern if we're in danger of abandoning our first love. And if our lives look less and less like Jesus, then we're probably in danger of abandoning our first love. <clears throat> we become what we love. If we love Christ, uh, then we should be becoming more and more like him. And Christ enjoyed sweet fellowship with the Father above all. He loved people and showed compassion to the down and out. He pursued and enjoyed righteousness so if spending time in God's word and prayer is dry and boring for you and more and more of a chore than it is a blessing, then probably uh, you're in danger of abandoning your first love. If we have time for uh, projects, not people, then we need to pay attention and take some soul inventory. If we're impatient with others, if we have hatred or jealousy in our heart towards others, if we fixate on our rights, if we're easily angered, then our love for Christ has probably grown dull. If we no longer hate our own sin, but toy with it, and we're not getting radical with it, and play with it, and allow it to kind of take root in our hearts, then our love for Christ has, has severely faded. Now, we're still sinners in this in-between time, in this time of the already uh, not yet of Christ's kingdom, so we're not going to be perfect in Christ's love, that's not what we're talking about. But if we see that the majority of what I just said characterizes our souls, then it's safe to say that our love for Christ is probably not preeminent. And so because we're sinners and because of the seriousness of this topic and the way it's laid out in Revelation chapter 2, we're taking some time to strengthen and increase our love for Christ. 
Uh, we're seeking to behold Christ in all of his glory, as Denny taught us from 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's really what we're trying to do. Uh, this morning, that's what we tried to do last week, to behold Christ. And as we behold Christ, we'll be more like him and grow in our love for him. And toward that end, last week we, we looked at Luke 7 and Christ's interaction with the sinful woman. Today we're going to look at another passage from the glorious gospel of Luke. And we'll be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. And we're going to see here that Christ and his teaching are preeminent in importance. And so his true identity demands our singular focus, demands our zealous love, our first love. And we'll see that Christ is the good portion. And again, as we look at this gospel of Luke, we see that Luke's answering this question, who is Jesus? Uh, he's showing that because of Jesus' true identity, because of the glories of his person and his work, people should zealously love him and follow him. And so we're going to look at this familiar interaction between Mary and Martha and Jesus. And then we're going to wrap up our discussion by applying this text uh, once again to that charge of Revelation chapter 2. So if you would like, if you're not there already, please turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 38. We'll first look at Mary's response to Jesus. And that is a singular focus. Verse 38 says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered the village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. So Jesus on his way to Jerusalem He's just finished his Galilean ministry. We learn in John 11 that Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus live in the village of Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem near the Mount of Olives. Luke doesn't give us many details, but it would seem that this event occurred before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But this is that same Mary and Martha, and Jesus is en route to his Jerusalem ministry when he approaches Bethany. And as a traveling rabbi, he's in need of a place to stay, so Martha kindly welcomes him into her home. It uh, might also be helpful to note he's probably not alone. Uh, most likely he's with at least 12 disciples. My guess is probably some other folks. And so we can imagine the burden this might place on Martha. So while Martha makes the food preparations, Jesus begins to teach. And our text says that Mary, Martha's sister, presumably the, the younger of the two, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. To sit at a teacher's feet is the posture of a disciple. In Acts 22, 3, for example, Paul told the Jews, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. So Mary sits at Jesus' feet. She takes up this posture of a disciple of Jesus Christ. But let's think about this for a minute. Somewhere, somehow, Mary and Martha heard of this radical rabbi named Jesus and approved of his ministry enough to welcome him into their home. Now, Luke doesn't provide us with a strict chronology of events here, but we can at least say that this Galilean ministry, his Galilean ministry preceded um, this journey to Jerusalem. So whatever Mary and Martha knew of Jesus would have come from his earlier ministry, which in general is what we find in chapters 4 through 9 of Luke. And in those chapters, we see that Jesus cleansed the leper, healed a paralytic, forgave sins, challenged Orthodox Jewish beliefs with authoritative teaching. He taught in famous parables, healed a centurion's servant, raised a widow's son from the dead, 
essentially told John the Baptist that he was the Messiah, the servant of the Lord from the book of Isaiah who opens the eyes of the blind and brings times of refreshment and renewal to the earth, then calmed a storm, cast out a legion of demons, and Joe Biden thinks he's accomplished a lot in a little amount of time. But when a prophet right, of any stature comes to your home, the way you honor him is to sit at his feet as, as a disciple. Right? You, you listen to his teaching. You learn from him. But this is Jesus. This is not an ordinary prophet. This is the long-awaited Messiah, the miracle worker. This is the king of kings. Uh, this is the one uh, who, who, when others were, were leaving him, and, and Jesus asked the disciples if they too were going to leave, Peter responded in John 6, 68 and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right, so this is no ordinary prophet or a rabbi. This is the Messiah, and his teaching, his words, his message are the words of eternal life. It's this Jesus that's in Martha's home. And we can be pretty confident that Mary knows her sister is upset. Maybe she knows she's going to get the, uh, the wrath of Martha here before too long. She probably got some side glances and you know, maybe some uh, body language going on. Let her know that she needs to be helping her. But apparently, Mary blocks all that out. The Messiah, the prophet of all prophets, the ones whose word is life, is in her house teaching. She's at his feet, hanging on his every word. So the picture that we get here is that she has this simple and singular focus, and Jesus commends her for it. And we'll say more as we go along, but for now we can just take a moment and make a few summary statements about Mary's response to Jesus. Her posture is that of a disciple of Christ. She's a zealous learner. She has prioritized learning and, and hearing his word. She has a singular focus. She doesn't allow difficulties or distractions to keep her from her prize. In short, I think we could say that her actions uh, proclaim Jesus' extreme value and are consistent with one who loves Jesus Christ preeminently. And so she receives Jesus' approval, this commendation. How about you? Is being a disciple of Jesus Christ your priority? We have this high king's word readily available to us. We have his word in written form, audio form, braille form, whatever form that we could possibly imagine. Uh, the words of our, our, our Savior right here for us. Do you have your priorities in the right order? Uh, do you sit at the feet of Jesus? Is Christ your singular focus of devotion? Do you love King Jesus? So that's Mary's response. Now let's turn to Martha's response. And we see that she has a distracted interest. Again, verse 40 says, but Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. So we see Martha is distracted and many of our ladies, I think, could empathize with Martha if John Piper visited our fellowship and then for whatever reason um, ended up at your house this afternoon for lunch, dinner, and maybe breakfast tomorrow, along with his 12 buddies, we could see how that situation might be distracting. But we see that she's not only distracted, she's distracted with much serving. And I think that that adverb here is key. She's distracted with much serving. The problem isn't that she was trying to serve Christ. That's obviously commendable. 
She's probably the woman of the home, and so she's the one who initiated or made the final decision to receive Jesus Christ and his entourage into her house in the first place. And it's also not that she doesn't value his teaching. I don't think that we can assume that. That's partly, uh, part of the reason why she received him. The original word for distracted is in the passive mood, and it carries with it this idea of being pulled away. So it's not that she doesn't want to hear Jesus' teaching. Can't assume that. Her problem is one of priorities. Her problem is this much serving. And Jesus doesn't need much serving, particularly at this point, because he's in the middle of teaching. And kids, Jesus set you a good example. He never spoke with his mouth full. So the Messiah, uh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is in her home proclaiming the words of life, and she is pulled away. She's preoccupied with much serving. And then to add to that, she's upset with her sister Mary. And it seems she's also a bit perturbed with Jesus. I mean, she says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Is it not a concern to you? Don't you care? Her words are a bit accusatory. And then she keeps just digging herself a hole. And I think we see this better in the Greek. Literally, the, the text reads something like this. Lord, is it not a concern to you that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, say to her that she must help me. You could almost put that in quotes. She must help me. So she gives Jesus a charge and then tells him the exact words that he ought to be saying to Mary. She is mothering the high king. Now, we learn of Jesus' sense of humor in other places in the Gospels, I think. We don't know for sure his full demeanor here. We do know, I think, that there's at least some tenderness in his response because of what's called his double vocative, you know, saying Martha, Martha. I think he's probably smiling at her at this point. I mean, uh, her audacity is over the top. It's laughable. Jesus, the Messiah, he's the ruler over all kings and principalities. Every knee will bow to him. He is God. And she's interrupting him, presumably, interrupting his teaching so she can say this to, to him. And Martha tells him when she does speak with him what to do and what to say. And so Jesus kindly, graciously corrects her. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Ouch. I mean, not only is her request, her demand rejected, uh, but she receives this gentle, subtle rebuke. The implication is that Mary, uh, or rather, the implication is that Martha has not chosen wisely like her sister. Now, this isn't an affirmation of Aristotle's life of contemplation. This doesn't validate a monkish lifestyle. I think Jesus is simply saying that, that um, we should get our priorities straight. He's not saying that we should all quit our jobs and, and study God's word day and night to the neglect of other duties. He's just pointing out to Martha that her priorities are wrong. She's anxious about the wrong things. She's fixated on the wrong things to a wrong degree. And so it's if Jesus says, Martha, the king of kings, the prophet that surpasses the greatness of Moses is sitting in your home 
go to the kitchen, grab a pitcher of water, some chips and salsa, and hurry to bring it back and pass it out to me and my, my friends and sit down at my feet so that you don't miss another word. I think that's his point. And we see that this is a rebuke in his choice of the word anxious. The Greek word is talking about being unduly concerned. Howard Marshall says the word often expresses a worldly attitude which is due to unbelief and which can divert a person's attention away from a proper concern for the things of God. Again, I think just highlighting that her priorities are wrong. Not a bad thing to want to serve Jesus. That's a good thing. But the degree to which she thinks she needs to serve him, that's where the issue is. It's taking her away from what is ultimately important. Later on in Luke, in chapter 12, verse 22, Jesus tells his disciples, do not be anxious about your life. Same word there. What you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And then in verse 30, he adds, for all the nations of the world, seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. That's the issue. Seeking first the kingdom of God in this particular situation is to sit at the high king's feet and value his teaching above all that we value. So the right response would have been to serve him with the necessities, set aside the usual much serving that was expected probably culturally, and then hurry to sit at his feet. This would have honored him much more than, than being pulled away by much serving. And again, we'll say more on this in a minute, but for now we can make some summary observations of Martha's response to Jesus. She assumes her priorities are right and so judges her sister. She, she's unduly anxious about things that, that really aren't all that important. And again, I think probably the much serving was a cultural expectation. So she was allowing the world to set her priorities. She's distracted by less valuable things than the Messiah's words of life. And Jesus' reputation, his person, and his works leave her without excuse. So unlike Mary, her actions do not proclaim Jesus' extreme value. So again, how about you? Are you distracted? Have you allowed your heart to fixate on other less important matters? Are your priorities set by Scripture? Or are they set by society and the world around us? Do you take full advantage of the opportunities that you have available to you to sit at Jesus' feet? Are you overly concerned about how others are doing to the neglect of your own devotion to Jesus Christ? Parents, are you more concerned about the spiritual health of your children than you are uh, regarding your own lack of love for Christ? and devotion to him. Students, are you more concerned about your grades, uh, your reputation, or your future than you are about your personal devotion to Jesus Christ and his person? Are your studies, even theological studies, do they have devotion to Jesus Christ as their end or do they have knowledge and one-upmanship with your fellow students as their aim? Does your life show the extreme value of Christ's person and work? So that's Mary and Martha. Now let's turn uh, to the heart of this passage and look at Jesus' verdict on himself. 
And he says, he is the good portion. In verse 42, Jesus says, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. If you're reading the ESV, you can see that there's a little note there that says, some manuscripts say few things are necessary or only one. But the earlier manuscripts and related witnesses say, but one thing is necessary. That's the one I favor for some reasons and what I'll say here in a minute. But either way, the point of both witnesses in context is to highlight Mary's right choice. Right? The clear idea here is, is that there is little in this life that is really necessary. And Mary has nailed what is ultimately necessary. She's chosen the good portion. And the good portion here refer, refers to uh, Jesus' teaching. This is the one thing that is necessary. And if we just kind of take a step back and look at what Jesus is saying, either he is the high king, the Messiah, or he's the most arrogant man that ever walked the planet. He's saying, my words are the good portion. That's an extremely bold statement about the value of his person because you can't separate his words from his person. And I say that because in the Old Testament, the one thing necessary is to seek after Yahweh. David says in Psalm 27 and 4, for example, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Right? The one thing that is necessary is this sweet fellowship with Yahweh. And then Psalm 119, 72, the psalmist speaks of Yahweh and proclaims, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The words of Yahweh are better than gold. That's Mary's portion. Jesus is God in the flesh. The Holy Spirit is mightily with this one. Mary is seeking the right thing. She, she's gazing upon his beauty. His words are the words of life, just as Peter said. Only one thing is necessary, to behold God, to listen to his word, to eat that bread. You remember in Matthew 4, 4, after Jesus was in the desert for 40 days, he quoted Deuteronomy 8, 3 to the devil and said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. But here we see Jesus saying that his words are the one thing that is necessary. Either Jesus is God, equal with him, or he is a blasphemer. So this is high Christology. Uh, but I believe even more is going on here. Jesus goes on to say that Mary has chosen the good portion. Now, uh, some people believe that this is the word good there is a superlative and, and believe Jesus pointing out how Mary's choice was simply just better than Martha's. And that's true, her choice is better than Martha's, but I don't think that that's what's going on. Uh, the word here is a normal word for good, or, or it could be, even be translated as beautiful. And it can be a superlative. It, it can mean better, but only when there's a clear comparison in the text. But Jesus doesn't bring up Martha's choice at this point. He's only addressing Mary's choice. She's chosen the good portion. And when we look at the Old Testament, we see that this good portion is described as Yahweh himself. So, for example, in Psalm 73, 25 to 26, the text we read for our call of worship, we read, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none on earth, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart might fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The word in our text, that word portion, is the same Greek word that's used in uh, 
the translation of the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Same word. And so I think Jesus has that in mind. The, the psalmist portion is Yahweh. In Psalm 16:5, David writes, uh, Yahweh is my chosen portion. Again, same word. And my cup. And David's portion there in Psalm 16 is uh, similar in being compared to his inheritance. Uh, this portion is his prize, and his prize is God himself. But speaking of his own teaching, which again I said we, we can't disconnect from Jesus' person, Jesus says that Mary has chosen the good portion. She has chosen David's prize. She chose to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his teaching. Jesus is her inheritance. His person is highly valuable. He is God. The good, per, the good portion is now found in Jesus Christ. And there's not much that is really necessary. There's not much that's really needed in this life, but this one thing is necessary. This good portion is necessary. To sit at Jesus' feet, to be his disciple, that is what is necessary. Right? To hear his words of life. Right? right? The gospel of the kingdom. The reality that the Messiah in his mission is one who is going to come and save his people from their sins. Those words of life, that's what's necessary. And then we see that the ESV says that Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listen to his teaching. But the Greek word uh, for teaching is a form of this word, logos, which is translated in many other places simply as word, right? So she listened to Jesus' word, which is typically connected with the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, earlier on in Luke 8, 21, Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word, the logos of God, and do it. Those who are, are Christ's family are those who hear God's word and obey. Uh, they're those who uh, listen to Christ's teaching. They listen to his word and embrace it. Matthew 7, Jesus said that the wise are those who listen to uh, his words, his logos, and do them. That is, I think we can say the wise ones are those who become Christ's disciples. They hear the gospel, they obey, and follow Christ. Uh, so Jesus is the good portion. His words are the words of life. They contain the gospel of the kingdom. Only this is necessary. Jesus is a long way to Messiah. He is God, and his message is all that is really necessary in this life. The central message of the scriptures is God's redemption. Through this glorious king, Jesus Christ is the blazing center of all of history. So clearly this text isn't about Martha and Mary. It's about Christ's extreme value and importance. And Martha and Mary's responses here simply provide Jesus with the opportunity to affirm and to declare his own glory and his own worth. He is all that's really necessary. He is a good portion. And so in that light, we can easily see then why Mary receives a commendation and Martha receives this gentle rebuke. So the, the center of this text is Christ. But I do think that it's helpful, again, to look at the different responses because they declare the value of Jesus Christ. And so if we can kind of uh, hold on to Christ being the center as we then look at these responses, I think it will be helpful. 
Mary's response reflects the value of Jesus' person. Her singular focus is admirable and it's the kind of, of love for Jesus Christ that is right and true. So she gets that commendation. Martha's response is understandable from a certain perspective. I think we can look at Martha's response and go, yeah, I mean, there's, there's something there. But it's absolutely abhorrent when viewed in light of Jesus' true glory and his true person. And when we step back and understand what's really going on, the long-awaited Messiah is in her house. And she's distracted with much serving. She's missing something there. And so it's good that I think for us to ask, what is my response to Jesus? Does my love for Jesus Christ reflect well his true value and worth? Do you, do I, do we love King Jesus zealously and preeminently? Or have we abandoned our first love and devotion? Are we distracted and pulled away by many other things? Because the truth is, the reality is that Jesus Christ's person is glorious. That's the truth. Only one thing is necessary. He is the good portion. That's not up for debate. The question is, do our lives reflect his extreme value? In Revelation chapter 2, the charge was that the church in Ephesus had abandoned their preeminent and zealous love for Jesus Christ. Maybe they were distracted. Maybe their hearts were anxious about other things. But Jesus charged them, remember therefore from where you have fallen, <clears throat> repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So if your love of Christ has grown cold, if you don't love him zealously, if those red flags that I mentioned earlier on describe you, characterize you, if your life looks less and less like Christ, if your love for people is at a low, if you don't care about evangelism and so on and so forth, then first go back and remember. That's the first corrective action that Jesus commands. Remember. Go back. Behold Christ. Love is a response, right? Love is a response to Christ's glorious person. It's a response to the glories of the gospel and his message. I can just kind of picture Mary hearing what he was saying, that there was a way for sins to be forgiven and all these sort of things. And her response being enthralled by what he was saying. So love is a response to Christ's glorious person and his work. He is our good portion. Very God of God, he's all that's necessary. He, he's worthy of our singular focus. He's worthy of our, our zealous and passionate love and devotion. So remembering starts with Christ. It starts with beholding his glory. But this is also a call to remember from where you have fallen, which I think is interesting to think about. It's a call to remember how in past times you used to sit at, at Jesus' feet like Mary and hang on his every word. We're to remember how there, there was a time when we said with David ourselves, when we said with David, Yahweh is my chosen portion. So when I go back and remember, a memory that kind of comes to my mind that challenges my own love, my own zeal, was uh, a time when I was on a rusty gas tanker in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean making a run from Corpus Christi to New York. I was barely 19 years old, 
alone, far from any Christian fellowship, far from a church family for basically six months. My environment was godless, hard. No one that I knew of for a thousand miles loved me, cared for me. I was working 12-hour days every day using a needle gun, you know, a pneumatic gun to chip uh, the rust off of tank valves, and there was probably over 200 valves. Maybe that's a weight underestimation. But I had my Bible, and I had a lunch break, and I can remember reading God's Word during these lunch breaks and spending some time in prayer, and I can remember knowing that only one thing was necessary. I didn't say those words, but essentially, I mean, I knew that. And the one thing that was necessary was loving Christ and being known by him, communing with him, enjoying sweet fellowship with him, even though I was surrounded by pagans who hated God and didn't even believe that he existed. I had the good portion, and that was enough. In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, I was sitting at Jesus' feet, enjoying sweet fellowship with my king, undistracted, and I think miraculously satisfied in Christ alone. And those were some of the sweetest, singularly focused days of fellowship with Christ in my life that when I need to remember and go back, that's one of those occasions uh, that I go back to. Sit at Jesus' feet to be his disciple, to hear and to listen to Jesus' teaching, intently focus on his person, that tops the list of things that are necessary in this life. We make things too complicated. We let the world and our own flesh set our priorities for us. And we think that all these other things are necessary. But only one thing is necessary. If our love of Christ is faded, then we're to go back and remember, and then we're to repent, right? We're, we're to confess that distraction and preoccupation with other less important things. We're to agree with God. That's what confessing means. Simply, we're to agree with God that our priorities are out of whack. And then we're to turn. But in order to turn, I think it helps to be specific. It helps to know exactly what we need to turn from. We need to ask ourselves the more specific question of, what has gone in the way of my zealous love for Jesus Christ? Right? What, what has pulled my heart away from that singular focus? What has messed with my pure and simple devotion to Christ? How about for you? What has captured your heart if something has captured your heart more than Christ, what is it? Many times it's a busy life. One world missions director used to put a, a sign on his desk that read, beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Beware of the barrenness of a busy life. Sometimes our love has grown cold because we've filled it with unnecessary business. Busyness. Again, we've let the world set our priorities. You got to do this. You got to do that. You got to do this for your kids. You got to do that for your kids. Maybe we're constantly looking at frivolous things on our smartphones or our computers and just wasting gobs of time. 
Maybe we're distracted by things that we've made important but are really unnecessary. Instead of using our precious free time to meditate on God's word and in Christ's glory, we fill our time with unnecessary, unnecessary things like sports and hobbies, the pursuit of more and extra money, career advancements, movies, books, gaining knowledge, so on and so forth. Perhaps these things have, have pulled us away from a singular devotion to Christ and so have become competing loves. If so, then, may our hearts reflect the words of Samuel Rutherford, who once wrote, I am most gladly content that Christ breaks all my idols in pieces. It has put a new edge upon my blunted love to Christ. Isn't that lovely? Or maybe it's not a busy life that is pulling our hearts away from a singular focus and devotion to Christ. Maybe it's that we're too concerned with what other people are or are not doing. Maybe it's that we're fixated on what's going on out there. What the liberals are doing. What Donald Trump is doing. What President Biden's doing. And not enough concerned about where I am with Jesus. Uh, maybe we've allowed our hearts to grow bitter and we're focused more on what is happening to us, how people are treating us. And so our gaze has turned inward and we're focused on self instead of on Christ. Or maybe we just don't know exactly what it is that has pulled our hearts away from Christ and dampened our first love and we just can't quite put our finger on it. But I encourage you to to invite a friend into that conversation. Talk to some other people. And for sure, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us. Uh, we need to implore him to disclose our, our point of distraction. Pray that prayer that David prays at the end of Psalm 139, something like that. Lord, search me. Help me to see what it is that is pulled my attention away from you. But whatever it ends up being, we must turn. Stop the busyness. Stop the worship of temporary things. Stop focusing on self. Turn from whatever is stifling our zeal and then plead with the Lord for strength to definitively turn and once again cherish a singular devotion to Christ. All the while, remembering the gospel and being thankful when the Lord helps us see this is going on in hearts, remembering the gospel that it's not our performance that saves us, hallelujah, and also how amazing it is that Jesus Christ never wavered from a singular devotion to his Father his entire time on planet Earth, moment by moment. And then we're gonna do the works we did at first. Pray that God would help you change your priorities and then order your life accordingly. Plan that singular focus. Alexander Strauch notes, when we read and study God's word, it's as if we're sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to his wonderful teachings. Jesus himself tells us that the whole of the scriptures speak of him. He is its grand theme. We can't love him if we don't know him. And we learn to know him by the scriptures that reveal him to us. We simply cannot guard our love, nor can we grow in our love for Christ without spending time regularly in his word. 
A singular focus is a conscious choice. It's agreeing with this text. It's saying yes to Christ and no to some other things and probably some things that are really good things. One of the only areas that we're allowed to be jealous of and still be righteous is our own relationship with Jesus. If you're married, your relationship with your spouse, right? There's only a few occasions, but our walk with the Lord, our own personal devotion to him is one area we can be jealous. Oswald Chambers in his little booklet entitled My Utmost for His Highest writes, Jesus taught that a disciple has to make his relationship to God the dominating concentration of his life and to be carefully careless about everything else in comparison to that. Right? Decide, choose to be carefully careless about everything else in comparison to loving Christ and sitting at Jesus' feet. I love that phrase, carefully careless. Right? Choose to meditate on God's word. John 17, 17 tells us, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Meditate on, meditate on Christ and his glory. Mind the gems of scripture. You know, when we talk about meditation, we're not talking about Eastern meditation of Buddhist monks and so forth where they seek to empty their mind. We're talking about a meditation that's seeking to fill the mind, one that marinates the soul in the flavors of God's word, that kind of marination, meditation. Someone said it's like drinking tea, or making tea, rather. Now, when you make tea, you don't just like, dip your tea bag in and out. No, you, you let it steep for, for several minutes. Uh, sometimes our love has grown cold because we're in a, such a hurry. Uh, we're so distracted that we just dip our tea bag. We're blessed at Kenwood to have guys preaching the word on a regular basis who are regularly lifting high Christ and his glory from the text, all of the text, for us. But that's not enough. We can leave a 45-minute, 50-minute, whatever-minute sermon and go and have lunch and forget everything. But I think it's in this area of meditating on Scripture, chewing on it, like what or, or sucking on it, rather, would be a better analogy, on a, like a hard piece, or a good piece of hardtack candy. You know, you're just, you're just kind of sucking on it, getting all the flavor out of it. It stays in there for a while. It becomes part of you. Because if all we do is dip our tea bags, then we're going to find that the, that the flavor of Christ's love in our cup is bland and weak and not something that is going to go with us and meet us in the trials of life. As soon as something comes along that seems to be more fun, our hedonistic hearts are going to latch on to that. We need to follow the example of the psalmist whose meditation of God's word was a labor of love. In Psalm 119.20, he tells us, and I think this is exactly what we're, we're talking about this morning. Psalm 119.20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. See, this is a worship issue. I think that's what Jesus was pointing out with Martha. Something was competing with her worship of Christ. My soul is consumed. That's a great picture of this singular focus, this zealous love. And then verse 97 of the same psalm, he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. His heart is just saturated with God's word, God's priorities. 
the glories of Christ, the beauties of forgiveness, the wonders of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, no one who rightly meditates on God's word like this is going to be in danger of abandoning their first love. They're not going to have a dry and a barren soul. They'll be like that lush green, healthy tree of Psalm 1 that prospers in everything that they do. They're going to zealously love Christ. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our good portion. So if we find that our love for him has grown cold, we need to go back and remember. We need to behold our king and repent. And we need to ask the spirit to reveal to us where we're distracted, what things have pulled our heart away from this pure devotion to Jesus Christ, and so repent and do the works we did at first. And then once again, we're to sit at Christ's feet, be zealous learners, zealous disciples, thanking him for the gospel, thanking him for the glories of Christ, thanking him uh, that it's not our performance that saves us, but Christ. And when we do this, we're gonna notice that our icy hearts begin to thaw and the barrenness of our souls are going to start to produce new fruit. We're gonna start to become more and more like Christ. We're gonna start to treat others with grace and patience. Begin to feel less and less dry and we'll remain a church. We'll keep our lampstand to our extreme joy in his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that Christ is more valuable than everything and anything when we're in our right minds. The problem is sometimes, maybe too often, we're not in our right minds. Lord, help us to have a singular devotion to Christ. Help us to be carefully careless about other things. Help us not to let Western society dictate our schedule. Help us not to try to fit you in, but help us, Lord, to organize our lives around our devotion to you, around our devotion to Christ and his gospel. Lord, I pray for, I pray for us, pray for my brothers and sisters here, I pray for our friends that that we would be those who are characterized as having a singular devotion to you, that we would take time this week to meditate, to marinate our souls on the glories of Christ. Help us to behold him accurately and rightly, that you might be glorified in our lives, that the way we live, the way we talk, the way we think would proclaim your rightful worth. And we ask this to your glory and to our joy. Amen.